we don't think of democracy as something we have, but as something we do. And you get up and you do it every day. And every day, you're not going to get there. We don't. We haven't. We haven't achieved democracy once yet. But we're going to try again tomorrow. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. If there's a conspiracy theory or a far-right group, Jeff Charlotte has probably hung out with its followers. Charlotte is an investigative journalist and correspondent for Vanity Fair. He's one of the country's leading experts on religion, fundamentalism, and American politics. He is the winner of a National Magazine Award for reporting and numerous other awards. In 2019, Netflix released The Family, a five-part series based on Charlotte's reporting about the secretive fundamentalist group that includes among its members a number of the country's leading politicians. He has attended countless Trump rallies around the country, chronicled people preparing for armed insurrection, and attended gatherings of QAnon followers. Charlotte is a professor of English and director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. He has a new book out, the Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. I began by asking him how religion became the focus of his reporting. Uh, very much by accident, I think. Uh, I, I was not raised in a religious household. Um, I like to say my mother was raised me, I had a single mom raised me uh, unreligious in as many churches, temples, and compounds as we had friends. And that, that we would sort of, she was interested in the music. And so I would see all these ways people had of uh, living. And, and um, my mother died young of, of breast cancer. Uh, she was 48 and uh, I was 17. And I remember watching her dying and a lot of her friends that she had made um, through her sort of curiosity in these various religious traditions would come and pray with her. And there was this distinction. And I think it's a very, it's a profound distinction for understanding politics in America to me and understanding the way that religion intersects with politics. Some people would pray uh, for her salvation. Um, most would pray for her salvation of some form or the other. Um, uh, but, you know, she was a relatively young woman. She wanted to see me graduate from high school. She wanted to pray them to pray for deliverance um, that she might live. And you might think about this. Uh, I end uh, an earlier book of mine called The Family, which is about a fundamentalist organization, um, with a contrast between the book of Revelation, right, and the Bible. That's the end for those who, you know, it's been a long time. Um uh, it's the apocalypse, but it's also authority on high, revelation. It comes down to us versus the book of Exodus, which is uh, um, uh, the root of African-American, uh, so much African-American Christianity, uh, uh, Black liberation theology, liberation theology. It's Exodus. It's how do we get free? Uh, well, we're going to have to walk into the desert. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We're going to have to get together as a community. We're going to have to set ourselves free. And these are two different religious political traditions. And so I think over time, I, I became interested in sort of seeing elements of those uh, in religion, religious practice and realizing slowly that you really can't understand American history or American politics without a deep engagement with religion, which is ironic because most of our political press attempts to do exactly that again and again and again, um, and constantly getting surprised by the force of religion in everyday people's lives, um, even those who don't consider themselves religious. It still shapes us. A lot of people who, who come to your perspective come to it through, you know, a scholarly study of religion. You kind of took a what you yourself acknowledge was a dangerous path. You talk about in your writing the importance of submersion into the lives of others and crossing into a world of belief until you're lost. Yeah. And uh, how you talk, you describe this in The Family, your Netflix series, as spiritually dangerous, but it's, uh, you say, you know, you can be converted. You can um, lose your perspective say a little bit more about your own journey into this kind of submersion and then your exit from it. Well, yeah, that, that's, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I think to me, this is one of, one of the 
it's not just an interesting question about writing, but it's actually a question that I think we all have to ask now as we tell stories about what I do see as an ascendant authoritarianism and fascism, not just in the United States, but globally. We need to think about how we're going to tell stories that are going to push back. And I come from a tradition of journalism is sometimes called immersion journalism, right? Like you're gonna go and immerse yourself in that world. But I always thought of the metaphor, right? Immersion, I thought of myself as like, here I am standing waist deep in the water with my notebook, looking down at the fishes, taking notes. No, it's gotta be submersion. You gotta get under, you gotta get in there. You gotta get, start swimming <laughs> underwater. You gotta learn how to breathe under what you have to be a part of this world if you're gonna understand it. And um, that also means that requires empathy. And this is a term that I think a lot of people get confused with sympathy. Uh, I think of it as empathy for the devil. I do submerge myself in a lot of right-wing worlds. Um, uh, and I bring empathy to it. I want to understand what it feels like to believe. Uh, what, it, you know, and the simplest thing, what it really feels like in the many ways, the many tributaries that people come to, to say loving Trumpism. Um, uh, not because I have sympathy for it, because I don't. I'm a left writer. Um, and I and I believe in that kind of subjective transparency. I'm a, or, or better yet, I, I'd like to call myself an exodus writer, liberation writer. I, I want us to help us get free with, with, with true stories. Um, but I don't think we do that from looking outside. Now, the danger, of course, is, um, and I've seen this happen to writers, uh, of people getting lost. People, uh, I've seen writers that go and they, they, they confuse sympathy and empathy, and suddenly they start drifting into, um, drift into a belief system, that's fine, drift into a, a, a belief system that becomes a whirlpool that takes you down into a hateful place. That's a terror. There's an extent in which the moment we live in now, all these people so-called going down the rabbit hole, you know, this is the phrase, uh, adherence of the QAnon conspiracy theory uh, thing. I mean, many, many of these people, um, uh, Vermonters included, I, some of them I know, were not far-right extremists or authoritarians or fascists, um, but they, going down the rabbit hole is another kind of submersion and, you know, I want to go I want to go down the rabbit hole with you, but I also want to go down the rabbit hole that you originally started down, which was enlisting yourself in the family. What looks to me like a kind of religio political cult. Yeah. um, And a very powerful one. And its adherents are among some of the most powerful people in Washington. So talk about your entry into this world. What is the family? Um, of course, you can say, go watch the five-part, six-part Netflix series on it. But for those who haven't, um, explain what it is and your experience with it. Yeah, it's a good Netflix series. You should go watch it. The director is Jesse Moss, and I always you know, want to give him... I'm in it, but I didn't make it. He did. Uh, I made the book uh, from which it's based. The family is the oldest and arguably uh, most influential conservative religious organization in Washington, not just in Washington, though. Um, they, they date back to 1935, Great Depression, which the founders saw as a, a crisis of the United States um, uh, embracing socialism. They hated FDR. It was a bunch of, it wasn't church people. It was big business people. Um, and they thought, in fact, what the first thing they needed to do to get America back on course was to break the strength of unions, which they saw as um, against God um, of organized labor. And um, they are best known today for something called the National Prayer Breakfast, which every president since Ike has attended. Um, although in recent years, my reporting and that of some others has started uh, last year, Nancy Pelosi didn't go. Usually all of Congress goes, what, what politicians going to say I'm against prayer? That was their understanding. They could make this banal front and then use it, as they're very clear they do, as a lobbying festival where you get defense ministers and defense contractors and oil executives from around the world making deals all for God. Um, and uh, so I, it's a, a very strange entity. I ran into it in a, a, an unusual way. I was writing about religion and uh, 
an old friend asked me to um, meet with her brother who she thought had joined a cult. He'd been on a sort of successful career track and then just gave it up and moved to Washington to live with this house of men in their 20s. And and, and, and I want to be clear for our listeners, you're speaking now as a mid-career journalist. You're describing yourself as a writer. You were right out of college at that point. You were a kid. I was a little older than that. I was about 30. I was like one of the oldest guys in the house. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, so I went, was that third? 29, maybe. Um, uh, um, but uh, I had I had quit my journalism job to write my first book uh, with Peter Manso, which was about the varieties of religious experience in the United States, just wandering and talking to folks called Killing the Buddha after the Buddha, not an anti-Buddhist thing after the Buddhist idea. And so this was right after 9-11. And I met with the man who I call Zeke in the book. And he told me about this remarkable organization, but infused with this sort of contempt of secularism that I had not quite heard before. And yet he's name dropping all of these congressmen and senators, these you know, prominent Republicans of the day, world leaders. And he invites me to join. And I happen, I'm a secular Jew, but they don't care about that. They believe that God has this message. And the message is, um, they think that God got Christianity wrong, or not God, I'm the God makes no mistakes, they say. Um, uh, Christians have gotten Christianity wrong by focusing on the down and out. This is their language. They said, what God calls us to do is to serve those whom they call the up and out, the elite, the most powerful people. And it's kind of a trickle down fundamentalism. You don't have to convert the masses, convert the rulers, and they will make uh, the godly kingdom, right? This is what they do. And they have uh, dozens of congressmen who attend weekly Bible studies. Um, uh, I suppose the most prominent one right now uh, would be um, Mike Pence. Uh, I ended my 2010 book about them saying uh, uh, a scandal-ridden member of the family would not be going to the White House as he hoped. But who knows, in 2016, maybe it'll be Indiana backbencher Mike Pence, an ambitious man. So he didn't quite make it to the top seat, but he did get there. Um, and uh, I went and I lived with these guys. They, they, I, I didn't, I never was particularly undercover. There was just sort of a lack of curiosity. Um, uh, and I lived with them for about a month and then um, wrote about that uh, very strange experience and meeting all kinds of uh, Senate leaders and 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 uh, Ed Meese, Reagan's old attorney general, is a big part of it, and uh, discovered that they had dumped uh, seventy years of archives at a evangelical school in Illinois, and I dug into those archives, and so that shaped. That's my first experience writing about the religious right. Is not the pulpit pounders, not the folks you sort of see on TV. These are folks who don't want publicity. They they call themselves the Christian mafia. They believe uh, the, the longtime leader says uh, the national prayer breakfast is the only thing, that's the only part that you see. This is, that's only one tenth of one tenth of one percent of, of, of what we really do. Um, they call themselves an invisible organization. It's not a conspiracy, uh, partly because they don't break laws so much as they make them. They are lawmakers. Um, and um really, really influential and in subtler ways than the regular Christian right. Um, uh, they don't, you know, they don't come out. Uh, you can look at the end of Roe, and that's something they started working on decades and decades ago, but not like those people on TV who are screaming about it. They were working in the halls of Congress. Well, I want to encourage um, listeners to, to, uh, finish the story that you're starting by seeing the Netflix series called The Family, which is really uh, fascinating. Um, you have probably attended more Trump rallies <laughs> than just about anyone who I can think of. Um, take us back to, and I know you were starting to do this back in 2016. Um, well, take us back. What do you see at these rallies? And in, in 2020, you wrote an article for Vanity Fair that uh, these rallies are not about idealism, about political ideology, it's about survival. So that uh, I, is particularly interesting to me. Tell us what goes on at these rallies that you attend. So 
I, the, the the center part of this book, The Undertow, is is sort of a story of what a, a, a colleague of mine called the uh, the Trumpocene, the age that we're living in. And the Trumpocene, by the way, is going to keep going whether Trump does or not, in the same way that the age of Reagan kind of took us a long time, where something so changes the American political structure that it endures. And in 2015, when Trump announced I went around to my editors and I said, let me write about Trump. This is something I understand. This is the kind of thing the family, that fundamentalist group, has never supported at home, but has supported overseas. And it's a little bit like the strong man that they have helped install in so many countries. Here it is coming home to roost. And it depends not on just one right wing movement, um, but a convergence of a lot of different right wing strands that are normally actually at tension with one another. And listeners might say, what do you mean movement? Social movement is a term that can apply to the right as well, to the left. That's what it was. So I asked my editors in 2015, I said, this guy is going to be a contender. And they all said, no, no, Jeff, you can't do it. Trump's a joke. Um, uh, you know, you, basically they told me I wasn't funny enough to write about Trump because they just wanted goofy, silly pieces. Um, <laughs> they and, saw him as an object of satire. Yeah, yeah, this is not going to be contender. Don't be ridiculous. And it wasn't until 2016 where um, the very first editor that I'd worked with on that group, the family, and who said so we'd come up together, he sort of understood. He said, "I bet you look at these rallies, Jeff, and you see a religious element." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I haven't I hadn't been to one at that point, but I said I'd have to go and see." And uh, I started off with a rally in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, really broken. Uh, steel town and um, yes it's a religious event and what's fascinating about it um, starting with the you know there was a preacher at every uh, rally usually uh, black or Latino um, not always but often and there was at that one there was two at that one and they're the warm-up act because you're there for six or seven hours before Trump comes listening to his playlist of Billy Joel and Elton John and Pavarotti and uh, YMCA and people dancing in the crowd and the sort of this fervor and ecstasy sort of building. And the preachers I was hearing were the most right-wing preachers I'd ever heard. And I'd been to a lot, but I looked back at the press because I didn't go in his press. I went, I was like, I want to, I want to submerge myself. I got my ticket. I stood in line for six hours. I, I went in. I was crowded in with people who were talking about how much they loved to beat the hell out of a journalist if they could get their hands on one. The press, meanwhile, is back in a metal pen. And because that's the that's what Trump insisted on, right? That they stay in a pen so that they'd be a prop. Because at every rally, there's a point at which he says, there they are, the enemy of the people. And the crowd turns and they, you know, they raise their middle fingers and they scream and so on. It's a wrestling prop and why the press participated, I will never know. Um, and why they didn't pay attention. You would never see these hard right wing preachers uh, being reported on um, because they were there to hear, get the sound bite. So as Trump starts racking up victories in, in evangelical states, people are stunned and surprised. Um, but he had been laying that groundwork. And that groundwork appeals not just to churchgoers, because most of the people at Trump rallies aren't churchgoers. It's Christian nationalism is not about piety. Uh, it's about the idea of um, sort of American identity being white kind of Christian sensibility. And the fact that it's a black preacher, a radical right black preacher at, a, at the rally selling it to you, well, tells these people i'm not racist look there's there's a black guy up there preaching essentially white supremacy um and it's appealing to a lot a lot of people so that's that just got me on the trump trail and 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 understanding the trump scene uh through this transformational religious lens and i think that's you know it's i think future historians whatever happens will see these past seven years and what's to come as a major turning point in American Christianity. How does Trump, a guy who is not religious, who uh, would seem to fly in the face, his own personal story, the, you know, multiple marriages, the infidelity, the, uh, you know, consorting with 
prostitutes, etc., etc. How does he become a figure of adulation in something that calls itself a Christian, a religious, a moral movement? Uh, two ways. Um, uh, one is, uh, and this is something I've learned from the family, looking at the leaders that they had supported globally, uh, sometimes not Christian at all. For instance, Sahardo, the genocidal dictator of Indonesia, uh, worked closely through the family, considered it his channel to the United States government. Um, he was a he was a Muslim, um, but he was willing to do business. Um, uh, you know, and they would do business with anybody because it's sort of this again, Christian nationalism is not only theological, it's a it's a the it's a theology of empire, right? So who serves the empire? Who serves frankly, the kind of the capitalist vision of this kind of what they call the this movement calls biblical capitalism. And if if you haven't read the Bible, here's a spoiler. Capitalism is not in the Bible, but they think it is. They do this sort of close reading, this economic reading of the Bible to prove that this economics is there. So um that means if you're working with dictators and bad men, and the family knows they are, they said, look, these are God's chosen tools. And the fact that they're advancing what we believe is the right way is proof that's God working. You know, Trump, Trump is much clearer evidence of God's hand than a very pious and zealously devout man like Mike Pence. God can use anybody. God can use a tool. They'll say, King David in the Bible. Again, people far from their, 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 if they've never read the Bible, oh, aren't those guys like, no, King David is a monster. King David is a monster. And the family would teach me this, and they teach this to the politicians. King David, you know, he's got a wife, but then he's got, he's fighting a war and he sees a, uh, uh, a woman. He's spying, he's a peeper. Uh, uh, a woman bathing naked. Well, so happened Bathsheba. So happens to be the wife of his top commander. So what's he do? He arranges for his top commander to be put in a precarious place on the front lines. So he's killed so that he can get Bathsheba. And then depending on how you read and Bible scholars can debate this, he seduces Bathsheba or he rapes Bathsheba. And God likes this guy, right? That's their model. If God can like King David, he can like Trump. Trump becomes... Um, I read about this in the undertow. There's a, a 2016 bestseller, not in the bookstores you and I go to, but it was a bestseller. It was called God's Chaos Candidate uh, by a writer named Lance Wallnow, one of the early evangelical adopters of Trump. Trump was a chaos candidate. God was using Trump, as he puts it, as a wrecking ball to smash not just the political establishment, but also to smash the evangelical establishment to smash their idea that we must have moral men. Now, now they have really fully adopted, we must have strong men. Strength matters far more than morality. Hmm. Um, but what I was gonna say, the, the, the other thing is he made a deal, right? He made a deal, he hired Pence, he put in more evangel, he did, he did do more for evangelicalism and the Christian right than any president. And he filled the middle ranks with those folks. And he turned over all kinds of policy in areas we don't pay attention to them in ways that are going to reverberate for decades. Um, so as somebody who's kind of moved back and forth between these worlds and uh, lands uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire, trying to translate this to the New England, the skeptical New England um, audience, how do you describe who the archetypal Trump supporter is. I would resist, I, I, I would actually resist the archetypal Trump supporter. Um, and, and partly because I think it's important to understand Trumpism. And what I, I really want us to not get confused by the personality politics of Trump versus Ron DeSantis. This is all Trumpism. And if Ron DeSantis is a president, we're still going, or, or we might say, it is fascism. And I'm careful about that word. I resisted using that word for most of my career. I said, I thought once that fascism, full fascism wouldn't be possible in America because of fundamentalism. They wouldn't switch out the father for the Fuhrer, a personality cult, which is central to how fascism works. I was wrong. They did. So Trumpism proceeds. Um, 
And part of it proceeds because it is a convergent social movement, right? It's not, it's drawing on, you've got proud boys, right? And you do have, um, I, I've got in the book, on the other side, there's proud boys and then there's a, a hipster church in Miami, a hipster art church. They're both in there, you know, uh, on the one hand, a mostly Latino, uh, a white and Latino church uh, of um, uh, beautifully dressed people, beautifully young professionals. On the other hand, uh, in Sacramento, California, um, a group of mass proud boys brawling in the street and there to hurt people or in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, a militia church or and you said to the New England off uh, um, uh, New England audience. I think of this every now and then I write about some other state. There's a chapter in the book about Wisconsin. And like some Wisconsin, I said, why did you write about Wisconsin? What's, you know, that's because I was there. That's where I was. I could do this about Vermont. Yeah, we're a blue state, but I'm in Hanover and in 10 miles in any direction, I can find not just flying a Trump flag. That's easy. I can find um, what is the all black. If you've seen an American flag, but it's all black, this is the flag of, this is a genocidal flag. This is the flag of no mercy, no quarter. The one who flies it believes civil war is coming and they believe that no prisoner should be taken. Let's go back to January 6th. You have in a sense been prophesying and predicting this kind of violent insurrection in a lot of the strands of your writing. You find it there. What did you see? when you looked at the TV and saw the January 6th insurrection happening? I mean, from the, a few days after, I think from the night of uh, the 2020 election, when Trump comes out and does not concede, I was thinking, look, what we're facing here is kind of a slow motion coup. And I think that's uncontroversial language now, but at the time, uh, those of us in journalism and media who said it, we were considered just hysterics. And it's been sort of an inching, you know, this is the thing, since 20, since Trump left office, we've been moving further and further to the right and greater and greater comfort with, not comfort, but acceptance of that language. And January 6th, I was stunned like everybody else. I was, uh, my kids were out sledding with my wife and I was sort of watching it and I was sort of texting live updates and I'm like, wait a minute, Julie, oh, you got to hear this speech. This is crazy. Oh, he's calling for them to march. Wait, they're at the Capitol now. Oh, they're inside, um, you know, sort of telling the story. And I was still, you can know that that's the dream of those on the right and still be stunned that it happened. Um, and when there was a, a white woman named Ashley Babbitt, who uh, was climbing through a broke, she was an insurrectionist, climbing through a broken window and uh, a police officer named Michael Byrd uh, shot her. And the video came out, I think that day, the first video. And as soon as I saw the video and I saw that you could only see the, the police officer's hands, it was a black man's hands. I knew what the right was going to do with it. And mm -hmm. she was going to be their martyr. She was going to be their horse vessel. If you know your, your World War II history and the Nazi party, they had to have a martyr. Uh, 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 and that she was also going to be in the particular American context of race. She was going to be D.W. Griffith's great movie, or great, as I mean, great and terrible, as in hugely influential. It's a disgusting racist movie, but Birth of a Nation, it's also the root of Hollywood. Birth, you don't you can't understand Hollywood without going back to Birth of a Nation, and and it's about you know a black monster chasing an innocent white woman and she leaps to her death. Um, this is the lynching myth, the white womanhood uh, uh, killed by a black man, and they went full force on it right away. And I think that was sort of when I thought, okay, that's a turning point. You've got a martyr. Uh, now maybe you can have a war. A lot of this discourse that you chronicle kind of goes on and is invisible to sort of the, um, I, I won't even say progressive or liberal, just, just to kind of the rest of the world that isn't immersed in this kind of alternate narrative. So talk about who Ashley Babbitt has become to followers of the news. 
She was an insurrectionist who was killed trying to break into the speaker's office. Yeah. But she has taken on a whole nother level of mythology as you write about in The Undertow. Explain who she was and who she's become now. So when I saw that, when I saw, I, I mean, I remember that day, I said, oh, she's going to be a martyr and this is, she's going to, they're going to play into the lynching this. And I thought, this is, I, I'm, you know, part of my interest in religion is also interested in kind of political mythology. And I knew this was going to be an American story. Um, and so the biggest part of the undertow is kind of following her ghost, her haunting across the country driving around the sort of like the, the insurrection trail and all these people who think that they know Ashley Babbitt, who she really was. She was a, a woman in her thirties. She'd been, you may have heard she'd been an air force veteran. Um, uh, she had not always been a right winger, two times Obama voter. Um, uh, just kind of a regular everyday person, um, fairly decent person. And then which came first, you know, the debt or the hate, um, uh, the disappointments or the fascism. She channeled um, her, the things that didn't work out for her in life into this kind of hatred. And here comes Trump. Um, her first tweet, you know, online is the path. Right? Her first tweet is hashtag love for Trump on Halloween uh, of 2017. Um, and, uh, she just, then she's all in and she keeps falling And here. And what Trump does to folks is he says, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be mad. It's good. Look how successful I've gotten doing this. And implicitly what he's saying is it's okay to be white, which is a white supremacist slogan. Right. And Ashley starts going down that road to the point where her husband uh, is just sort of puzzled. He's not really a political guy. In fact, uh, and she's not who you expect either. She's in a, a sort of a, she's married, but it's a, uh, it's a three-way relationship. She also has a girlfriend. Um, uh, they live by the beach. Her favorite movie is The Big Lebowski. You know, she's not who, this is when you ask about who the archetype is, uh, you know, a kind of hippie beach beach girl from Southern California who loves the Shaka sign and, you know, sort of a dude and loves the Big Lebowski and um, likes making silly movies. That's not who you're thinking. But there it was, and she was ready to go. Um, there is, uh, they say that she was an unarmed woman. She wasn't. The cover of my book is uh, uh, the police evidence photo of her knife that she was carrying. Um, as she broke through the window into uh, the speaker's lounge. Um, and what's happened to her since is, and this happens to a lot of martyrs, right? And not just on the right. Um, she's become sainted. Um, but in a particular right-wing way, which is so fascinating, even on the day of, they started aging her backwards. Um, you would see various people talking about what they had seen. And here's this woman in her 30s, and they're like, oh, little woman. Um, she was she was small, 115 pounds. Now, man, 110 pounds, 105, only 25, 16. They're aging her backwards into this imagined innocence of the little white girl um, who is the perfect victim for them. Mm. Um, and now any violence that they commit in defense of a little white girl, little blonde white girl is justified because they're protecting the children. And that's what makes her just such a dangerous martyr. So you go down other rabbit holes. One of them is the incel movement. Mm. Explain what it is and what you found down this rabbit hole. Uh, they wouldn't call themselves the incel movement. Uh, at the time, they were calling themselves the men's rights uh, movement, the, the MRAs or men's rights activists. And I have to say, I've written about so many right-wing movements over the years. And partly what I'm interested in is they're always much more fascinating and complex than their caricature amongst those on the left. Partly because people do, people do things for reasons, right? And they're usually complex reasons. The MRAs, the men's rights activists are the only group I've ever found 
that is actually dumber than their caricature. Their caricature is awful and you get to them and they're just a bunch of guys who are so mad at their ex-wives or their ex-girlfriends or the girlfriends that they never had. And they kind of dress it up in this idea that, I mean, they do strange things like read the great feminist writer, Andrea Dworkin, and then flip it. So it's not women who are oppressed, it's men. And they have real issues, but they don't actually care about that. For instance, suicide, much bigger uh, amongst men. They talk about um, uh, young men in prison. They talk about all these kinds of real issues that, that we could address and we could address using feminism. They don't really care. They want to rail against women. And they became part of the way the book Undertow is structured. I wanted to see these currents, these undertow that was leading us to Trumpism because they were around. And, and we, we should explain for, we may have left some people in the dust here who know nothing of what we're talking about. The incel refers to involuntary celibate. These are men and they come to our attention because periodically they commit mass murder, uh, often against women as some expression of, you know, settling some perceived injustice done to them. So I, I did want to fill in that detail as we're going down the men's rights activist, which is a completely sanitized reference to what has morphed into a very violent subculture. Well, I would say partly because the incels are uh, a strand of the MRAs. Um, incels involuntarily celibate. Um, and we're seeing these weird sociological numbers that um, it is true, more and more men are not having sex um, or uh, for whatever reason, um, and then blaming blaming women as if it's owed to them. But the men's rights movement and uh, is includes plenty of men who, it includes men who do have uh, female partners, includes women. Um, and that particular movement has a group called the Honey Badgers. Honey Badger is a fierce little animal. And oh my goodness, they are hard, hard right wing against feminism. And I kind of shudder to think that people say, what, I haven't heard of this because this is everywhere. This is everywhere. And a, a resurgence and kind of um, a misogyny, uh, Roe, uh, you know, the downfall of Roe, that doesn't happen without this coming. And and the the popularity of politicians like Ron DeSantis or Trump or, or whoever the next one will be um, uh, depends on this. And you're right, they do. I started writing about it after a man named Elliot Roger um, uh, called himself the Supreme Gentleman and um, was deeply bitter at the world for not having a girlfriend. And so he killed uh, a bunch of people. Um, not just women, he killed men too. They, he hated men who he perceived as unfairly um, uh, having uh, relationships with women. And these guys get heralded as kind of heroes in the same way that, um, this, I mean, the mass killings happen so fast now we can't keep up with them. The Buffalo killing seems like a long, long time ago. You read his manifesto and you see he's just cutting and pasting. They're cutting and pasting one manifesto to the next. So how do we make sense of this moment where we're in, where there is this mass susceptibility to lies and delusion, where, you know, Trump loses an election, but can go around and insist that what happened didn't happen, and as a sign of loyalty to him, you too must insist that what happened didn't happen. And in fact, the entire leadership of the Republican Party, if they're to stay leaders, must subscribe and sort of profess this delusion publicly. Why are we, why are the people you encounter in your reporting so susceptible to these lies? I mean, there's there, there's any number of tributaries to that, but uh, put it, and this is an answer I think that some people will resist because we want to say, I hear it all the time. Those people are just stupid. No, they're not. Um, and if they were so stupid, then we, they wouldn't be such a problem. Um, uh, Trump, whatever else he is, he may not be bright in the way we respect. Um, I think a lot of liberals hear him speak and they say, ah, oh, this guy, what a fool. He's one of the most effective orders. 
him and Obama are the two most effective orators I've ever heard. Mm. They're working in radically different ways. Obama through elegance and lyricism and vision. Trump more like a perversion of a Borscht Belt comedian, um, which is his timing. It's comic. He does skits. We don't see a lot of that on the news. He performs, right? Um, he entertains, yes, and that pulls people in. But the way I approach it in the book, in the undertow, is it's it's broken up into three sections, and they each name for a song. And I'm telling all these terrible stories, so dear re potential readers out there, the book begins and ends with hope. Um, and two singers. Uh, and so uh, uh, um, Harry Belafonte, who was actually a great hero of the civil rights movement, and an even more forgotten guy, Lee Hayes of the Weavers, right, long ago, leftist movements that didn't succeed, but they're part of the ongoing struggle, liberation movements, I should say, not leftist movements, liberation, helping us get free. And in between, so I named each section there, Deo for a Harry Belafonte song, Goodnight Irene uh, for a Lee Hayes song. And in, in between, to describe the Trump scene, I took a song that gets played at Trump rallies, Aerosmith's Dream On, and it would play again and again. You'd be there for hours and people would do dances where they'd be spinning around. And, you know, it's a sort of like, you know, rock anthem. Um, I suppose there are some listeners who've never heard Aerosmith's Dream On, but especially hard to be in New England <laughs> and not hear it. Um, and, I know the song well. You know the song. Yeah. And <laughs> and I think I think the dream metaphor is is useful um, because the liberation the, the freedom struggles of the past are are never about um, preserving what is. They're about imagining something that could be. Uh, I don't think that we preserve democracy. I don't think we fully achieve democracy. I think we have to keep imagining democracy, right? So that means we go into a dream space um, and we need to, uh, we, that's where politics is always happening. Trump and Trumpism and the many, many Trumps around him and fascism in general, fascism is always a dream space. It is an imaginary, it's an imaginary politics, right? Um, and we call it a nightmare. I call it a nightmare. Um, but so much of the dream space, of the imagination space was ceded to them that, that they were able to occupy this. So we say, how did they do it? How are these people so duped? Some of them were duped. Some of them just were filled with hate to begin with. Some of them let the hate grow. Um, uh, and I think of uh, some steel workers I met in Youngstown, Ohio. This is back in 2016. Democrats their whole lives going to vote for Trump, knew he was a racist, mocked him for it, uh, said, but at least uh, he says that the steel, he's bringing the steel mills back. And I said, do you think he can? And they go, oh, no, no, he's not going to do that. So I said, so why do you care? He says, because at least he lets us think he is. Um, and, and listeners might say those fools, um, but pay attention to the storytelling, to the appeal to imagination. Um, and that's why I begin and end the book with these kind of visionary artists um, who are saying, how do you fight this? You do need political imagination. Um, so you've you've cautioned that you don't want to go into the, you know, is Ron DeSantis the next Trump and all this. But I can't help but think because as I listen and watch DeSantis and as you describe Trump and what a, a masterful orator and and performer really he is because it's not just the speech it's the whole shtick um desantis the words are there but the performance is not he's a he's got this bully boy thing but it's not the same kind of revival type of experience with desantis it's like he's mouthing the script but he's not playing the part and it's why i don't think the DeSantis phenomenon is going to be anything like the Trump phenomenon, but that's me. So tell me your take on it. I, oh, I agree. Um, although I would say, you know, um, one of the, because I was looking at the religiosity of Trump rallies in 2016, the religiosity was something called the prosperity gospel, um, health and wealth, the idea that God wants you to get rich. Look at me. And how do you know, Trump, I'm rich. This is, this is, you know, this is the televangelist who asked for your money. Send me money and then God will bless you, right? Um, and, and the second time around, it had gotten much darker. 
Um, and it was this kind of bastardized American Gnostic gospel, um, a gospel of secrets, a gospel of conspiracies, um, uh, secret truths, uh, and only, you know, only the initiated could understand it, right? Um, so that, for instance, people would look at Trump's tweets, famous for their misspellings and strange capitalizations, quite common on the right to read all that as deliberate, Mm-hmm. as a way of transmitting code. Mm-hmm. Um, now, DeSantis, not his style, but that's a big s- switch between 2016 and 2020. I, you know, if I had to bet today, I if I had to bet today, I hate to say it, thin odds, I'd say Trump is going to win in 24. Um, Trump going to win the nomination or the election? I Both. Um, I think it's really possible, and I think people who are, telling themselves it's not are really making the same mistake we made in 2016 and then in 2020 even though he lost but he didn't lose enough did he um so i think but desantis could be it too because that's what i mean by understanding the sort of the ascendant fascism and it's worth remembering by the way this is not an american phenomenon what's terrifying about this moment is that we have fascisms all over the world rippling throughout europe Italy, Hungary, Poland, Russia, um, uh, China, officially a communist state is for all practical purposes, a fascist one. Um, uh, Philippines, uh, Brazil has just for the moment tamped down uh, its fascist dictator. We'll see how long that goes, right? And um, so to see that's that's a tide or an undertow, right? Um, they can pull a lot of different things. You know, Trump isn't like Viktor Orban or Vladimir Putin, the leaders of Hungary and, and Putin to other fascist states, or, or Erdogan and Turkey, another fascist, or for that matter, Bolsonaro in Brazil, all of whom, by the way, have been called Trumps, mm-hmm. the Trump of Turkey, the Trump of Brazil, um, all these different styles. Fascism has an incredible gravity. I think it could bring Ron DeSantis in. And that's why I sort of say that as much as I'm fascinated by personality cult around Trump, I'm also fascinated that there is forming a personality cult around Ron DeSantis, despite the apparent lack of a human personality. Um, uh, uh, and it's perhaps a darker moment is that Ron DeSantis is a full out battle figure. He doesn't, there needs no warmth or humor now. It's about fighting and this slow civil war. People say, what if violence breaks out? It's broken out. It's not just January 6th. Um, uh, I've never, I've been driving across America so long uh, for so many years. I've never seen so many guns. Um, I'm a gun owner. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, an automatic. uh, If you have a gun, you're the devil, anything like that. Um, but churches with militias now, that's new. That's really new. Um, and um, So what, uh, you say that you bookend uh, the undertow with hope. Um, I must have missed the second bookend of hope because I definitely finished with a distinct sense of dread. Um, you were chronicling a civil war and scripting where it was going to come from. Um where do you see the opportunity to prevent this civil war from just boiling into fascism? Um, so the hope at the the hope at the end, and I'd, I, it's a piece about this singer named I'm just and that'll this would be my way of answering how to do it. This singer named Lee Hayes, part of this 1940s 50s folk group called the Weavers, the better known members. Uh, where um, Pete Seeger and sometimes Woody Guthrie would sing with them. Um, and if you ever heard If I Had a Hammer or On Top of Old Smokey or any number of Good Night Irene, you owe a lot of that to Lee Hayes more than Pete Seeger. He's the guy who would take these songs, these old traditional songs and reinvent them. And these guys were radicals. Um, they were at the time members of the Communist Party, but they weren't particularly party line. They were freedom guys. Um, and um, Lee Hayes got broken. Uh, um, the House Un-American Affairs Committee, you know, prelude to Jim Jordan's committee today, Congressman Jim Jordan's committee today, right? 
um, uh, called him and he pled the fifth, you know, do you know any communists and so on? And it terrified him. It just, he didn't survive. And he was sort of a broken man after that. And that actually to me is the hope, right? Harry Belfonte at the beginning, unbroken, but it's very clear, the civil rights movement that he and Martin Luther King, with whom he worked so closely, this is not, this is not the dream that they had. We're not living it. Um, you keep going, right? This is, and and you grasp these moments of courage. The last line of the book, I'll give it away because it was in some ways the first line of the book. I knew that I'd written this essay. I knew it was going to be, this is where it goes. And it's Lee Hayes and he's, uh, he's thinking about a moment where he's riding through the Arkansas night with some labor organizers and it's a dangerous time, but they're filled with courage and hope. And they say, for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. It's Lee's line. For a while, it was possible not to be scared even. The hope that we have now is not the, hey, let's all get together and um, it'll work out. I mean, because the book also has an undertow of of climate crisis, driving across the country under the red, you know, smoke red skies uh, of, of burning America, right? I can't give you the hope now, like, hey, uh, David, if we uh, just drive our Prius and get our right light bulbs, we'll be back to normal in no time. Uh-uh, we're, we're going into the unknown and it's gonna be frightening and we're gonna fail and fail and fail and fail again and you keep struggling, right? So I think, Right now, the undertow is pulling us out to civil war. And, you know, uh, even a couple of years ago, to say that would have marked me as hysteric. But now you have you have you have never Trump conservatives saying the same. You have um, uh, the pundits who, who who dismissed those of us writing about the right years ago as saying, oh, the right is done in America. Um, and this is how I mean. You know, when I published The Family in 2008, people said, why would you want to write about the Christian right since they'll never be influential again? Because Obama was elected and everything was going to be okay forever and ever, right? Um, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, the specific, how do we stop civil war? One thing I think we don't do, um, uh, probably not a lot of your listeners, but maybe in Vermont, is we don't think, oh, well, they're armed, we can arm up too. One, they got a head start. It's 400,000 guns in civilian hands, or 400 million guns in civilian hands in America, and um, not a whole lot of them are lefty hands. And you don't want to get to a civil war, and the quickest way to get there is to add more guns. Um, so we do what we do in Vermont. We have town meetings. We have uh, we organize. We know community. We we do work locally. Um, we don't think of democracy as something we have, but as something we do. And you get up and you do it every day. And every day, you're not going to get there. We don't. We haven't. We haven't achieved democracy once yet. But we're going to try again tomorrow. Well, Jeff Charlotte, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. <laughs>